Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, February 10th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshur with today's headlines. Imran Khan's allies take an early lead in Pakistan's election. A federal judge raises concerns about Joe Biden's age in the president's classified docs case. Benjamin Netanyahu says Rafah will be evacuated before Israel's offensive. The White House reacts to the dismissal of Ukraine's commander-in-chief. Malaysia's top court says some Islamic laws and Kelantan state are unconstitutional. Donald Trump soundly wins the Nevada GOP caucus. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan announces his Senate bid. Tucker Carlson releases his interview with Vladimir Putin. A prominent climate scientist wins a $1 million defamation suit. And Brazil declares a dengue public health emergency ahead of Carnival. In our first story, Emran Khan's allies take the lead in Pakistan's election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Independent, Al Jazeera, CNBC, and The Daily Mail. Voters cast their ballots in Pakistan's contentious election on Thursday. In a surprising turn of events, independent candidates aligned with imprisoned former Prime Minister Imran Khan took the lead, despite not being able to run as members of Khan's PTI party. The final results are still inconclusive. The incumbent PMLN party of former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif was the overwhelming favorite to win the parliamentary elections, and long reporting delays sparked accusations of fraud. Counting has almost finished for 265 available seats, and independent candidates, most of whom are affiliated with the PTI, have won 97 seats, more than any other party. Nawaz's PMLN won 66 seats, while Pakistan People's Party won 51 seats. Despite returns showing PTI affiliates winning the most seats, ex-Prime Minister Sharif claimed that his party had won the largest share of the vote. Pakistan's military, a powerful force in politics, has worked to freeze the PTI out of the election after Khan's removal from office. There have been reports of deaths and injuries stemming from violence around the election. Meanwhile, the EU has called for an investigation over possible election irregularities, and the U.S. stated it's looking forward to timely, complete election results. A video was posted to Emron Khan's ex-account Friday showing an AI-generated Khan declaring victory to his supporters. Earlier this week, the imprisoned former prime minister said that he would choose death over making a deal with Pakistan's authorities. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Our first narrative spin is Narrative A from Time magazine. Despite all of the lies, deceit, and abuse of power, the PTI has the overwhelming mandate of the Pakistani people. Imran Khan is the full weight of the Pakistani political and military regime aligned against him, yet his ideas cannot be stopped. Unfortunately, the powers that be are still working behind the scenes to undermine democracy and manipulate as many votes as they can. Pakistanis and proponents of democracy around the world cannot stand idly by as Nawaz Sharif and his allies attempt to coup. The PTI won this election, and it will deliver for its supporters. And here's Narrative B from the Times of India. The Pakistan election still has no clear winners, but it appears that PMLN has secured the most votes. Pakistan has conducted a free and fair election where the will of the people is heard and honored. 
Unfortunately, violent extremists have perpetuated political violence that has delayed election results. But this election will be sorted out shortly. A coalition government will soon form to begin serving the Pakistani people. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 47% chance that Pakistan will experience a successful coup d'etat before 2040. Biden won't be charged in the top-secret documents case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, the Associated Press, The Guardian, Forbes, and BBC News. Due to his mishandling of sensitive documents, the actions of U.S. President Joe Biden after his U.S. vice presidency ended posed a serious risk to national security, a federal probe has found. The investigation stated that because of Biden's cooperation, besides the difficulties in charging him, criminal prosecution would be challenging. The U.S. Department of Justice Special Counsel Robert Herr's report suggested that it would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him, by then a former president well into his 80s, of a serious felony. Herr further stated that any prosecution may not be possible since the 81-year-old will only be seen as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. The report said Biden forgot about the Afghanistan-related documents after they were found at his Virginia home, It also said the president even seemed to forget when his son, Bo Biden, had died. Her's 345-page report is based on more than a year-long probe. The investigators conducted 173 interviews with 147 witnesses, including Biden himself. Biden vehemently disagreed with the report's characterization, yet inadvertently stoked further speculation by referring to Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi as, quote, President of Mexico. Earlier this week, Biden also confused former German Chancellor Angela Merkel with Helmut Kohl. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. Here's the Republican narrative from BBC News. If anyone harbored doubts about Biden's age-related inabilities, the special counsel's report and the president's bumbling response to it should clear them all. Each time the Democratic Party tries to deny it, Biden himself blows the lid open on his worst-kept secret. In any case, his age-related challenges are a secret only to him and his party, which somehow still expects the nation to give him four more years at the helm. And we have a Democratic narrative from The Guardian. A political hatchet job was executed to perfection by a special counsel whose Beltway Republican credentials are well-known. Robert Herr has handed Donald Trump an easy line of attack against Biden in the run-up to the 2024 election. And it couldn't have been more below the belt than pulling the president's late son into the narrative of, quote, if too senile to be prosecuted, then too senile to be president. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 9% chance that Joe Biden will no longer be U.S. president by January 20th, 2025. Whatever happened to the idea of disagreeing behind closed doors and then presenting a united front to the public? What are we doing? We're we're the age of information, baby. We're like, let's put everyone's dirty laundry out there. That's the way we're going. That's where we're going. When Trump was, whoever the president, I'm an American. I'm sorry to say, I'm an American. And (laughs) I wasn't, I'm not for tearing down the president either way. He can only last for four years. Let's, you know, you know, campaign hard, discuss the issues, you know, get as dirty as you want in that. And then we have a president. Let's go with him. I feel like. It would behoove both sides to buttress this person as much as you can 
I understand the naivete of that sentiment, though. Yeah, it does. It does feel like an old world uh, order of operations. It's just it's lost. You, you know what I would do then in this era? If this is how we're going to do this, let's make it so that uh, a president gets one six year term or something. So then you are not running again ever once the person's in they're in but it's a little bit long you know we're splitting the difference obviously and then um then we can all agree cuz right now they want to tear him down to beat him i understand that and 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 right. to the same term democrats whether they like him or not want to build him up whether they think he's good or not cuz the alternative is a republican so it's all yeah. a game let's just make it so you get one term and if that means making it six so be it and then it would just get yeah. rid of it i i think the president I mean, again, so naive, but Trump has said this. I remember Obama saying this. Uh, I'm sure Biden has said it. Remember Bill Clinton saying, you're the president of all the people. You're not the president of the Republicans. You're not the presidents of the Democrats. Um, yeah, I, I'm just so against this thing. And I'm against it tearing down Trump when he was president, too. I don't I was that was also distasteful. Um, but I understand it's I'm, I'm naive. Here I am. There, there yeah. you go. With your ideals, Mr. Wallace. I just don't, I don't get the two candidate thing. I think that's dumb. I just. Well, I mean, let's not forget. It's a system. George Washington, you know, pretty good guy, you know, wooden teeth and all, all that, you know. Kind of smart. He said when he, A, dropped out of being president, lifelong president, you know, he invented the idea of staying in for two terms and leaving. He could have been president for life. He could have been Caesar. He could have done whatever. He said. Here's what you got to do. America has all these advantages. We're going to be fine. We just have to do two things. Avoid foreign entanglements. And don't have a two-party system. So how are we doing? How are we doing? I I know you're not the only one who knows that quote. And people who are smart and in the political science field and in the business of politics, probably George also Washington, know that pretty quote, well known yeah, politician. Here we are. You know, he's a he's he's not it's pretty not well a known deep cut. American yeah, not politician. A deep cut. Yeah. I, but then why what are we doing? We're not the only ones who know that quote. Why are what, we doing? What are we doing? I, and that and that's not to get into the weird conspiracies, but it feel it almost feels like we're tearing each other apart. Or is this is this, you know, is Rome burning and this is just the way of the world, you know, and, and we're on the way down. I don't know. I don't want that to be the case. It's just crazy. But you you brought up many times, you know, the snake eating its own tail. Is that what this is? We're, we're so far ahead in defense spending and innovation and all these resources that we have to just attack ourselves. It's it's sad. It makes me really it makes me angry. It's a strange it's a strange situation that we're in. And it feels like it, is there a, well, I'm not going to quit. I have to keep going so that my opponent doesn't win. Oh, it, so, just and so it's much not wrong. even I'm saying that Biden needs to be the guy, but they have to support him no matter what. We can't even tell if he's the right guy or not. Nobody knows. I just think we're making too many other problems for ourselves that are distractions yeah. into what's really going on. Come on. Like, we can't juggle all this. And, you know, is that on purpose, too? I, I, I don't know. I have to start another conspiracy theory, but we're being distracted. Honestly, and, and not to be Mr. Cynic, but like, it just feels like, gosh, we're just, we have so many advantages. I was looking at a map of the Mississippi River the other day, and it's like the mathematically ideal thing to have like flowing through your whole country. 
you know, it, it flows through the whole <laughs> country. Like we just have water just, yeah. just, you know, there's so many countries that are just deserts or the, it, we have yeah. nav. There's a navigable port in Duluth, Minnesota. Think about that for a minute. Mm. That's how big the Mississippi river is. I don't even know if we use it, but there's a, wow. you could, you could have a nav. you know, you, know, there's, you live in Seattle. I lived in Seattle. There's a navigable port in Seattle, obviously. There's a navigable port in Duluth, Minnesota. So like wow. just, and again, that's just the sixth grade geography angle, but like, that's how set mm. we have it. Yeah, and, and you talk about Russia. Ru- oh man, Russia, we don't have any warm water ports. We have to fight to get Crimea back because they don't have any ports. So think about what they, yeah. now, should they do that? Should they not? I don't know. But like, they have that issue. We, we have more ports than we know what to do with. And here we are fighting about what? I don't, I honestly, what? I don't know. And I read the news every GD day. And I don't, I wish I didn't have yeah. to sometimes. I'm honored to be able to do it w- with you and the other folks, but it's making me mad. I mean, I also, I'm very sick right now. You guys can probably tell uh, <laughs> both from my nasal congestion and my, and my irritability, but it's, I'm, I'm getting so tired of it. I'm getting really, I, 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 if someone asked me right now, who would be the better president, Trump or Biden? I don't know. And Can't me we too? choose other people? Yeah. The system's stupid. Nobody likes it. But that, I mean, now you're, I mean, anyway, it, it's crazy. I, I'm so disillusioned by it. I'm so disillusioned and I'm so upset and I'm so disappointed because we as Americans have it made like in a big, big way, like yeah. so much more. Again, Mississippi River. Look at all that water we have. Yeah. Duluth, Minnesota yeah. has a port. Netanyahu says Rafah will be evacuated before Israel's offensive. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, The Washington Post, Reuters, The Times of Israel, and the Associated Press. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Friday that Israel will evacuate displaced Palestinians from Rafah, who represent more than half the population of the Gaza Strip, before Israeli forces move into the city. Netanyahu, who earlier this week called a Hamas counteroffer on a hostage deal delusional, claimed that the group still has four battalions in Rafah and Israel must eliminate them to achieve its war goal, adding that any operation would require evacuating civilians. These comments come one day after U.S. President Joe Biden said Israel's military response in Gaza has been over the top and that his administration was pushing very hard for a deal between Israel and Hamas. Meanwhile, U.S. National Security spokesperson John Kirby said the U.S. would not support a major Israeli military operation in Rafah under the current conditions. The border town has been hit by steady airstrikes throughout the war. The possibility of such an operation has stoked tension with Egypt, which has consistently opposed the displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. The Egyptian military has reportedly deployed tanks and armored personnel carriers to the border with the enclave to bolster security. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed almost 28,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7 stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Voice of America. Israel's war against Hamas is just, given the atrocities the group committed during its October 7th attack. However, Israel must take into account the innocent civilians in Gaza, who are trapped between Israel's military machine 
and Hamas's terrorist fighters. Israel has not yet created acceptable conditions to move into Rafah, and it must have a concrete plan to evacuate civilians from any areas in which it will operate. And here's a pro-Israel narrative from the Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel must eliminate Hamas once and for all to ensure Israel's security. To eliminate its capacity for terror, Israel has been forced to use blunt tools to rout Hamas forces, as they are so deeply dug into Gaza's civil infrastructure. Israel has worked hard to compromise and ensure the safety of civilians, but it will have to go into Rafah if an agreement is not reached soon. And the pro-Palestine narrative from Al Jazeera. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is already far beyond catastrophic, as over one million Palestinians barely survive in dense and muddy tent camps while battling famine and disease. If Israel were to push into Rafah as it did Gaza City and Kanyanis, the consequences would be absolutely dire. And here's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 56% chance that Israel will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. The White House reacts to the dismissal of Ukraine's commander-in-chief. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the White House, the Kiev Independent, Washington Post, and Ukranska Pravda. The White House on Thursday reacted to news that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky dismissed Valery Zeluzhny from his post as commander-in-chief, opting to appoint Oleksandr Sersky. Responding to questions from reporters at a White House briefing, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said that Zelensky gets to decide the military leadership of his country. That's what civilian control is all about, Kirby said. We know that, and we'll work with whoever he has in charge of his military. We'll continue to work with our Ukrainian counterparts. Kirby was asked if this replacement posed any questions of instability in Ukraine. We're not concerned about Ukrainian stability as a result of this, the spokesman said. He was further asked to comment on a Washington Post report stating that Zelensky gave advance notice of the dismissal to U.S. President Joe Biden. White House officials did not support or object to the high-stakes decision, but acknowledged it as the president's sovereign choice, the publication reported. Nonetheless, it said this highlighted the influential role of the U.S. In response, Kirby said that if the question implied that the U.S. was required to approve the decision in any way, that this was not true. He said, this is President Zelensky's decision. There was no requirement for the Ukrainian government to run it by us. Thank you for that, Scott. Here's the pro-establishment narrative from the White House. Zelensky is the sovereign leader of Ukraine. While the U.S. appreciates him keeping Washington informed of his decisions, it was purely his to make, and the U.S. will continue to work closely with whomever he decides to have in his top leadership. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the Washington Post. While the White House says this was solely Zelensky's decision to make, it nonetheless highlights the influence and power of the U.S. on Ukrainian decisions. It's unimaginable that a leader of another country would have done the same. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 30% chance that Ukraine will join NATO before 2035. Malaysia's top court rules some Islamic laws in Kelantan are unconstitutional. Here are the facts as agreed upon. Malaysia's top court ruled Friday that more than a dozen Islamic rules put in place by the state of Kelantan are unconstitutional. 
An eight-to-one majority of the federal court's nine-member bench ruled 16 laws within Kelantan's criminal code void and invalid. The nullified laws include provisions criminalizing sodomy, incest, gambling, sexual harassment, and defiling places of worship. The case was filed by two women in 2022 after the majority Muslim state enacted a new set of laws relating to Islamic offenses. The women argued against the constitutionality of 18 state laws, claiming they were already covered by parliament and beyond the jurisdiction of the state assembly. The court ruled that Kelantan had no authority to enact laws, as the issues were covered under Malaysian federal laws, and ruled against all but two of the laws in question. Malaysia has a two-track legal system with Islamic criminal and family laws that are put in place by state legislatures and apply to Muslims and secular laws that are put in place by Malaysia's parliament. Hundreds of protesters, including pan-Malaysian Islamic Party supporters and conservative Muslims, gathered outside the court ahead of the ruling, demonstrating in support of the protection of Sharia laws. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A from ABC News. This is a sad day for Islam in Malaysia. By challenging the power of Sharia laws in Kelantan, the federal courts have put into question the powers of Islamic laws across the country. Malaysia is an Islamic country and should be governed by Islamic laws. Narrative B comes from Al Jazeera. This ruling isn't an attack against Islam, but an affirmation of the Malaysian constitution as the dominant law of the country. The powers of the individual states are limited for a reason, and federal authority should be upheld. Next up, Trump achieves an overwhelming victory in Nevada's caucus. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, BBC News, New York Times, and Daily Mail. Former President Donald Trump overwhelmingly won the Nevada Republican caucus on Thursday, receiving more than 99% of votes cast. Trump only faced an unknown candidate, Ryan Binkley, on the ballot. Trump will win all 26 delegates from Nevada. With victories in Nevada, Iowa, and New Hampshire, Trump is gaining momentum to receive the Republican nomination for the presidential election. The only remaining candidate for the nomination, Nikki Haley, opted out of the caucus, claiming that Nevada Republican Party officials had rigged the process to Trump's advantage. Instead, she took part in the state's primary election on Tuesday. In the GOP primary election, Haley finished second, losing to the listed alternative, none of these candidates. Candidates were not allowed to compete in both races under state GOP rules, and the primary was only conducted to comply with a Nevada law requiring state-run primaries. The next GOP presidential primary is set for February 24th in South Carolina, Haley's home state. The former South Carolina governor pledged to continue in the race, saying voters want an election, not a coronation. Here's the pro-Trump narrative from PJ Media. Donald Trump cruised to an expected landslide in the Nevada caucus, a race that Nikki Haley was too scared to compete in. Trump's overwhelming support among Republican voters is palpable, even when he's not listed on the ballot as Nikki Haley lost to literally nobody. We have a conservative narrative from Fox News. No matter the outcome of these primaries, Nikki Haley is strengthening the GOP. She is standing for true conservative values and exudes a youthful competence that's adding needed dialogue to the Republican Party. With Trump's other opposition in the GOP field gone, Haley now stands as an important voice in the party's future. And here's the Democratic narrative from The Washington Post. 
All things considered, it makes no difference whatsoever how Donald Trump wins the Nevada GOP caucus. Nevada will never go to Trump in a presidential election. Trump has already lost Nevada twice in 2016 and 2020. And in November, he will be a third time loser in that state. And finally, a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 97 percent chance that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Former Maryland Governor Hogan is running for U.S. Senate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by X, the Associated Press, the Baltimore Sun and the New York Times. Republican former governor of Maryland Larry Hogan on Friday announced via X, formerly Twitter, that he will run for one of the state's U.S. Senate seats. In his announcement, Hogan said he is running not to serve one party, but to stand up to both parties, fight for Maryland and fix our nation's broken policies. A frequent critic of former President Donald Trump during his term in office, Hogan was once seen as a potential challenger to Trump for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. Now Hogan will run for the Senate seat that's opening because of the retirement of Democratic Senator Ben Cardin. Hogan, who served two terms as Maryland's governor before leaving office in 2023, will face an uphill battle in a state featuring a two-to-one voter registration edge for Democrats over Republicans. On the other side of the aisle, Prince George's County Executive Prince George's County Executive Angela Alsobrooks and U.S. Representative David Trone are locked in a primary for the Democratic nomination. Republicans would need to flip two seats in the 2024 elections to gain a majority if President Joe Biden is re-elected, while they would need to flip just one if a Republican wins the White House. Thanks, Melissa. The Republican narrative from National Review. Hogan was a popular governor, and his brand of bipartisanship obviously appealed to Maryland voters through two election cycles. Republicans should be celebrating the fact that Hogan might help them return to the Senate majority, and at the very least, Republicans will be putting up a fight for the seat. And here's the Democratic narrative from NBC. Hogan might be popular, and he might be a moderate, but at the end of the day, he still holds views on several issues, including abortion access, that put him on the opposite side from most Democratic voters. This race might be competitive, but Democrats are still in the driver's seat. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 75% chance that the GOP will control the Senate after the 2024 election. Tucker Carlson releases his Putin interview. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TuckerCarlson.com, Vladimir Putin's official website, The New York Times, and Tucker on X. American political commentator Tucker Carlson on Thursday released a 127-minute interview from Moscow with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin began with a roughly 25-minute speech on the history of Russia and Ukraine. He claimed Kiev had been one of two original centers of power of Russia in the 8th century, while alleging that the term Ukrainian didn't refer to any particular ethnic group but rather someone living on the outskirts of Polish-Lithuanian territory, partly reclaimed by Russia in the 17th century. Putin continued that Soviet Ukraine had been established in 1922 by the USSR and described the country as an artificial state that had been given a great deal of territory that had never belonged to it. Putin accused the West of ignoring the post-Soviet agreements against NATO expansion, arguing that it hadn't been welcomed into the brotherly family of civilized nations. Putin also claimed that he had discussed joining NATO with former U.S. President Bill Clinton in the year 2000, 
that former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych assumed power through a U.S.-supported coup. The CIA did not have an alibi for the Nord Stream sabotage. The U.S. controls all the world's media. And former U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson had dissuaded Ukraine from signing a peace agreement in Istanbul. Regarding the future of the war, Putin suggested that it would be better for Ukraine to negotiate with Russia, appearing to call on the U.S. to support such a move. He also said he had no interest in Poland, Latvia, or anywhere else, referring to claims that he wanted to expand the war. As for the U.S. journalist Evan Gerskovich's current imprisonment in Russia, he said the dialogue continues. As of Friday afternoon, the interview has been seen over 143 million times on social media platform X, formerly known as Twitter, with over 840,000 likes and more than 230,000 retweets. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round of spins with Narrative A from The Daily Caller. By choosing to interview Putin, Carlson exhibited a journalistic value regularly lost to the mainstream editorial elite, a dedication and duty to platform all individuals for the benefit of readers and watchers worldwide regardless of bias and ideology. Tucker's interview was historic and will provide the public with a greater foundation to be informed from all perspectives concerning an event of global importance. Narrative B comes from The Guardian. Tucker Carlson's time with the Russian president shouldn't be considered journalism, but rather an embarrassing publicity stunt promoting dishonesty and unjustified flattery at the expense of truth and the protection of democracy. Carlson rejected the opportunity to ask tough questions to one of the world's most violent dictators, instead prioritizing sensationalism for personal profit. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus that says there's a 50% chance that Vladimir Putin will cease to be president of Russia by October 2028. Tucker's been promoting this for a little bit on his social media. I've been looking forward to watching it, but I've been sick, as you can probably tell from my voice and my general demeanor. Um... But I haven't been able to watch okay, it. Okay, so what have you been watching in your uh, NyQuil-infused haze? Oh, only Paw Patrol. My kids are sick, too. Yeah, it's just just Paw Patrol. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Mayor Humdinger is a bit of a problem. Hopefully, uh, Tucker can can uh, interview him next. Mine I'm a too. bit of a Humdinger yeah. apologist. You know, I think he's misunderstood. I don't think we should. I don't think you should keep that on. Yeah, the that's air biased, spot, actually. Frankly. Yeah, the pro-Humdinger narrative. <laughs> if this gets out, I could be ruined journalistically. A climate scientist wins his defamation suit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Daily Caller, Axios, New York Times, and Forbes. Two writers, the National Review columnist Mark Steen and former member of the Competitive Enterprise Institute, or CEI, Rand Simberg, have been ordered to pay compensatory and punitive damages to climate scientist Michael Mann after they were convicted of defaming him. Steen and Simberg were ordered to pay $1 in compensatory damages, with Steen also hit with a million dollars in punitive damages and Simberg $1,000. Mann argued the two writers harmed his reputation by comparing an alleged research scandal to a sex abuse case involving Penn State football. Simberg wrote that Mann could be the Jerry Sandusky of climate science. Steen later referenced Simberg's article writing that Mann was the man behind the fraudulent climate change hockey stick graph, calling him the ringmaster of the tree ring circus. While subsequent investigations by the university and others found that Mann had committed no data manipulation, Steen continued to call Mann's work the fraudulent climate change hockey stick graph. 
The lawsuit, which Mann first filed in 2012 while he was working at Penn State, originally included both CEI and National Review as defendants. However, a court in 2021 ordered the organizations to be dropped from the case. Both sides are going to appeal the case, with Mann's attorney looking to pursue cases against CEI and National Review. Thanks, Melissa. NPR Online News brings us the left narrative spin. Instead of congratulating or at the very least accepting the iconic climate science discoveries of Michael Mann, Stein and Simberg wrote inflammatory and defaming propaganda. Their columns and blog posts were clearly aimed at harming the reputation of a man whose work didn't align with their politics. But thankfully, the court brought these malicious efforts to light and rightly punished them. The Wall Street Journal brings us a right narrative. Man's controversial methods for creating the hockey stick graph were critiqued by many people at the time this case began. And in response, Mann himself used character assassination tactics to go after them. As for Simberg, what he did was simply wonder whether Penn State was covering for Mann the same way they did for their football coach. Mann is not infallible and deserves to be questioned. And reason brings us narrative C. Whatever side you're on, the defamation aspect of this case is over. The question that will be litigated next is whether the punitive damages were excessive. Supreme Court precedent shows that million-dollar punitive damages alongside $1,000 compensatory damages, a 1,000-to-1 ratio, do not meet the constitutional due process threshold. And here's the word from Metaculus saying there's a 20% chance that there will be a five-year period with an average global temperature greater than 3.6 degrees Celsius, warmer than the 1861 to 1880 baseline before 2100. Brazil's dengue outbreak prompts a public health emergency. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, Folha de São Paulo, Agencia Brasil, The Telegraph, Forbes, and The Daily Mail. The Brazilian municipality of Rio de Janeiro has declared a public health emergency due to an outbreak of dengue fever and announced special measures to contain the illness just as tourists and revelers flock to the city for carnival celebrations, which kicks off Friday evening. As of Thursday, confirmed cases in Rio surpassed 14,900 this year alone. Compared to roughly 22,900 cases throughout all of 2023, with hospitalizations in January reaching 362, the highest record since 1974, and one fatality reported. The states of Acre, Goiás, and Minas Gerais, as well as the federal district, have also declared public health emergencies amid a surge in dengue cases nationwide. Brazil's health ministry has reported nearly 400,000 probable cases so far in 2024, with 54 confirmed deaths. In Brasilia, where cases have already surpassed the total for last year and vaccination for children aged 10 to 14 was slated to start on Friday, the military has been deployed to help monitor stagnant water breeding grounds of the Aedes aegypti mosquito, which carries the disease. Known as breakbone fever for the pain it causes, dengue is spread via infected female mosquitoes. About a quarter of those infected will get sick, of which some 5% will develop a potentially fatal severe dengue. Cases of the illness have also soared elsewhere in South America. Argentina has seen a record high of 10,000 cases in the first three weeks of the year, while Paraguay has declared a health emergency with 36 deaths, including 12 children, since December. Thank you, Scott. Here's Narrative A from Voice of America. 
While several factors such as population growth do facilitate the spread of this mosquito-borne disease, climate change is the main driver of the worldwide spike in dengue cases. As humidity, rainfall, and temperatures have increased, mosquitoes are growing and incubating their virus faster. And narrative B comes from The Economist. While allegations that climate change and new weather patterns are to blame for mounting outbreaks of dengue fever offer a simple explanation, that's comfortable for both those in power and ordinary citizens, this disease could have long been eradicated. It only takes some proactive, preventative measures to address this issue once and for all. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, February 10th. We use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. You can learn more about Verity at our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Alyssa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. 